So at this time, we're going to go ahead and prepare our hearts to learn from God's Word. Um, as a church, we're in a sermon series in Colossians, and if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or Bible apps to chapter 3, starting at verse 18, uh, I'll invite Natalie to come read for us. Thank you. Good morning. This is God's Word. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched, as people-pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Amen. Thanks, Natalie. Good morning, church family. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you joining with us. And yeah, my, my heart is very full. Uh, even seeing the team getting prayed for to go to Mexico, uh, I was really encouraged. It just struck me even right now about uh, how many of our teenagers are going to go and get to participate in this. I actually went to, as Pastor Doug mentioned, to this place in Vicente Guerrero when I was 17. Uh, my wife and I went down there with my family and a group from our church. My parents led trips there for maybe four or five years, and then somewhere about the same time that my, my family stopped leading those trips, uh, Pastor Doug and his wife Linda started going on those trips. So it's like a smooth handoff, even though I didn't know Doug and Linda at that time. What a Cool, cool thing. And my heart is just uh, full. And I just encourage you to be praying for the team. They leave next week, and so be praying for them. My heart's full. Uh, coming off of the prayer night that we had on Friday uh, over at Martha Lake, uh, we got to baptize three people. Uh, see that uh, that expression of new life, uh, faith in Christ. What's you know internal made external through the waters of baptism. And we sang and we prayed together. And I texted John. By the way, I'm excited because John is here. John is officially moved here from Houston, Texas. He's on staff of the church. And I texted John while we were praying. I said, hey, will you get a head count? And the number was what? 94. He's got detailed numbers already. The administrative thing is working well. I'm grateful for that and uh, uh, excited to be able to um, just celebrate and worship together with our brothers and sisters at Martha Lake Baptist. And if you've been coming for a while, you know that we have been in this conversation about bringing our two churches together as one, about officially merging together. And I want to encourage you, this is a really good week to be praying for all of the leaders and the members of Martha Lake. So today, Martha Lake Baptist Church, as, you know, about the time when we're wrapping up this worship gathering, they're going to be doing kind of a survey, a uh, 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 questionnaire of the members and regular attenders there, and that's to get the elders of Martha Lake Baptist some more actionable data, uh, just kind of as far as where things are headed with that. I hear a lot of people say, hey, what's going on with the merger? And that's one really important step. We have been meeting together a lot behind the scenes as elder teams and smaller groups, and uh, next Sunday, Based on some of those meetings, based on some of the information coming from Martha Lake, I plan to give kind of a longer update, a little bit more of an update at the end of the worship gathering about this whole merger process. And so I'm just asking, would you pray? Would you pray for us as elder teams? We are, we are meeting the elders of Sound City with our financial team this afternoon. And we need a lot of wisdom from God as far as how all the moving pieces and parts fit together. And so I guess just the big idea is pray. Big idea is pray, and I hope to be able to give a little bit more detailed information next week so that those of you who are covenant members of Sound City can kind of look at that and, and offer input and wisdom as well. So with that said, uh, Colossians 3, we are dealing with things like, you know, words like wives submit to your husbands and slaves obey your masters. And, you know, over the years I've made a joke, uh, you know, that, you know, for any of these types of controversial things, if you have questions, you can always reach me at 
Shane at SoundCityBibleChurch.com. And I would just like to officially announce that I am retiring that joke. It's not getting the laughs that it once did. And so I am just done with it. And I would like you all to email me at my real email address, John at SoundCityBibleChurch.com. And yeah, it's... You know, it's, it's, we're really drilling down throughout the book of Colossians. You know, we, we've spent several chapters talking about how amazing Jesus is and the work of the gospel. And, and then last week, we started talking about these kind of practical instructions about how God doesn't want to turn you into a better version of you. God wants you to reflect his son, Jesus. And so we looked at some of these practical instructions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but it's all based on the gospel. And this week, we're getting down into even a more granular level, looking at the Christian household. And these instructions, there's kind of three pairs you may have picked up on during the scripture reading. The husband-wife pair, the parent-child pair, and then the master-slave pair. And one of the reasons why we love to go through books of the Bible verse by verse and line by line is it forces us to deal with subject matter that for many of us, maybe that feels controversial. It feels controversial to address something like, wife, submit to your husbands. It feels controversial, certainly, to address the subject of slavery. But this is God's word, and we believe that it's breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable for us, and so we're going to do it. And next week, what I'm going to do today is we're going to deal with the, the, the two pairs of husband, wife, parent, child. Next week, we're going to uh, dip into the book of Philemon a little bit, which is a related book of the Bible to address this subject of slavery at more length next Sunday. So today, we're going to talk about the nuclear family. And one last little kind of caveat is I want those of you who are unmarried uh, or especially those of you, maybe you are married, you don't have children, maybe you're singled, maybe you're widowed, maybe you've just never been married, I want you to hear me loud and clear. Though the subject matter we're dealing with today is related to the nuclear family, the ultimate subject matter is about Jesus and the gospel. And there is something in this text for every single person, regardless of your age, your marital status, your parental status, whether you are a child, whether you have children, whether you wish for children and don't have any, this is about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so uh, don't, don't just assume this is a sermon for someone else. Uh, I, hope, I hope to guarantee that there will be something for you in this, even though we're more specifically addressing the nuclear family. Sound good? Let's pray together. God, we invite your spirit now to move in our hearts and to move in our minds. For myself, God, I ask and I pray that you would guard my speech and and direct my words that I might only teach that which is in line with the truth given to us in the scriptures. And God, I pray for each and every single one of us that you would help not only uh, our hearts to be soft before you, but I pray that our eyes would be clear to see things according to the truth of your word, and not always so much through the lenses, uh, the cultural lenses that we see things through. God, I ask and I pray that our attention, uh, even as we talk about marriage and parenting, I I pray that our attention really would be on Jesus, the one who has fulfilled all of this perfectly in our place and adopted us into the family of God for God's glory and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I came across an article about a week and a half ago, scrolling through Twitter, and the article, you ever have that moment where you see an article headline and you get like angry about it? You ever had that happen? I did that and I read the article and the article was called, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And like a good American, I got outraged at the headline and didn't read the article. But then I noticed the author's name. The author's name is David Brooks and I actually usually like his stuff. He's a Christian. Uh, This article was in a publication called The Atlantic, and I clicked on the article. Miracle of miracles. I actually read the content of the article, and it was a long article. It was longer than I expected. I actually had to push pause and come back to it later. But I'm really glad that I read the article because in the article, I know the title's a little bit provocative, but what he was advocating for is that if we really want our nuclear families, the the husband-wife-children thing, if we really want that to work, We need extended family relationships and community. That's what he was arguing for. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody around here? Uh, You need 
other godly relationships in your life. But along the way, he pointed out that we, in the 21st century Western American mindset, we've inherited some weird ideas about the nuclear family. We have a a, a cultural heritage that really coalesced in the years 1950 to 1965. Something that had never been seen before in all of human history, and it really has not worked since 1965, has become cemented in our minds as the ideal for the family. Let me me read to you a little bit of what David Brooks says, because I think it will help us as we come to this passage. Brooks writes, In these years... A kind of cult formed around this type of family, what McCall's, the leading women's magazine of the day, called togetherness. In a 1957 survey, more than half, more than half of the respondents said that unmarried people were sick, immoral, or neurotic. Whoa. Sorry, Jesus. Uh, You know, during this period a certain family ideal became engraved in our minds. A married couple with 2.5 kids. And I never understand the half a kid. If you're going to have some kids, just have a whole one. It's fine, right? When we think of the American family, many of us still revert to this ideal. When we have debates about how to strengthen the family, we're thinking of the two-parent nuclear family with one or two kids probably living in some detached family home on some suburban street. Sound familiar to anybody? We take it as the norm, even though this wasn't the way most humans lived during the tens of thousands of years before 1950. And actually, it isn't the way most humans have lived during the 55 years since 1965. Today, only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families, and only one-third of American individuals live in this kind of family. That 1950 to 65 window was not normal. It was a freakish historical moment when all of society conspired, wittingly and not, to obscure the essential fragility of the nuclear family. Now again, I want to keep reading here. You just need to understand, he's not denigrating the family. He's just saying we put too many eggs in this one basket. He goes on, he says, an extended family is one or more families in a supporting web. Your spouse and children, yes, they come first, But there are cousins, in-laws, grandparents, a complex web of relationships among, say, 7, 10, or 20 people. If a mother dies, siblings, uncles, aunts, and grandparents are there to step in. If a relationship between a father and child ruptures, others can fill the breach. Extended families have more people to share the unexpected burdens when a kid gets sick in the middle of the day or when an adult unexpectedly loses a job. A detached, there's that key word, a detached nuclear family, by contrast, is an intense set of relationships among, say, four people. If one relationship breaks, there were no shock absorbers. In a nuclear family, the end of the marriage means the end of the family as it was previously understood. I linked the article up on the church's website, and I would commend it to you. It's got just interesting things to think about. But I bring this up primarily to say that when we come to a passage like this in Colossians chapter 3, we need to recognize that we are wearing a particular set of cultural lenses. And there are assumptions and expectations that we make, often unwittingly, that color or distort the way we will see a passage like this. And oftentimes, that primary distortion is to obscure the gospel itself. See, we need to have a few baselines if we're really to understand this passage, I will argue. I think the first baseline we need to have is a baseline of extended family. Today, as we talk about husbands and wives, parents and children, we need to have in the back of our minds that the the pattern, not only for human history, but even in the Bible, is the assumption that our families do not exist as isolated, independent units, but that we really do need the family of God, the people of God, both blood relatives and chosen kin to be involved in our lives if the family is to truly be healthy, okay? Okay? 
The second baseline that is really going to help us understand this passage in particular is that we're talking about a specifically Christian household. You know, there's other passages in the New Testament that talk about a mixed faith marriage. 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, Paul, and, and Peter write about what to do if, if, if one spouse becomes a follower of Jesus and the other one is not. Yet, we are assuming in this passage, based on all of the instructions that are given, that this is a godly family, this is a Christian household, this is held up kind of as a model. And in fact, you shouldn't try this if you yourself are not a follower of Jesus. It's first about giving your life to Jesus and then learning how to live the Christ life. This is a Christian household. We also need to have a baseline of what I'm calling cultural tension. Here's what I mean by that. We all live in cultures where some aspects of the culture are good and God-honoring and some aspects of the culture are not. This is true in our day. It was true in their day. What's interesting, I'll, I'll read a, a scholar. Her name is Cynthia Long Westfall, and she, she says about this whole passage, and we'll, we'll get into it more, especially next week with the issue of slavery, but she says, in these pairs of relationships addressed, the wives, children, and slaves are, they're instructed to maintain behavior that is acceptable within the culture, while the directions to husbands, parents, and masters are revolutionary. Paul places the responsibility and obligation for sociological transformation in the Christian community upon those who have power, while he reverses the culture's negative evaluation of those without power, which is consistent with Jesus' teaching. I think that's beautiful. And again, we're going to get into that more next week, but there are some things in here. The, the, the problem is, is that the things that are so revolutionary and countercultural to them are the exact opposite things from our culture that are today revolutionary and countercultural. Back then, you would never have anyone blink an eye at the commandment for wives to submit to their husbands. It's a little bit different for us today. They would have been... What? When it says for masters to treat their slaves respectfully or for husbands to lovingly lay down their lives for their wives. That's the shocking part. For their culture, we have different things that we're shocked at. And the last baseline we're going to dive in here is just the baseline of the gospel itself. Friends, we have spent weeks, several full chapters of this short letter just talking about who Jesus is and how much God has loved us, and how the death and the resurrection of Jesus is our only hope, not only for this life, but for the life that is to come. And friends, if you are here today, and you have not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, first of all, my hope and my desire for you is that today would be the day that you experience the redeeming love and grace of our God and Savior. But the other thing is, if you've not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, don't try to do this. Don't try to do this. You will fail. This type of gospel-shaped household needs gospel motivations. And that's really what the big idea today is this. It's simply this. Your marriage and your family are about the gospel. In our culture, the romantic relationship has been made absolute. You need a romantic partner. Why? To make you complete. You complete me, right? You make me feel good. You make my dreams come true. You fulfill my desires and my wishes. And to a lesser extent, that does happen with parenting too, doesn't it? Oh, we want to have little kids so that they can just make us feel so happy. And then if any of you have been parents at all, you know you don't get very far down that road before you realize the kids don't make you as happy as you thought they would. God bless you children in the room. We love you. Uh, you're a lot of work, okay? It's actually all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only from that true foundation can we have any hope of experiencing the kind of joy that comes from this, okay? So pair number one. Husbands and wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Let me start with the husbands. 
Husbands, despite what you may have heard, there is not one commandment in the New Testament that instructs you to lead your wives. The commandment is consistently and always to love your wife. And love, I will remind you, has been so watered down as to almost be rendered meaningless in our culture. We use the word love primarily in our culture to say that which makes me feel good, that which satisfies my wishes, my desires. But friends, the biblical definition of love could not be more radically opposite. The biblical definition of love is based on Christ laying down his life, setting aside the independent use of all of his divine attributes. The the book of Philippians says he emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant, washing his disciples' feet, being obedient to go even to death on a cross in order to redeem and love and wash and serve his bride, the church. Husbands, that's a high calling. 1 Corinthians 13, it gets read in a lot of weddings, which is highly ironic because it's a rebuke passage. It is a passage that was written to rebuke a church that was really terrible at love. Go read it. It's nothing to do with husbands and wives. It has everything to do with a church that is really jacked up and selfish. It applies to all of our relationships, but it does also apply husbands as you evaluate. Am I, am I patient and kind with my wife? Do I envy her? Am I boastful or, or, or arrogant? Am I rude? Am I self-seeking to my wife? Ooh, here's a good one, husbands. Am I irritable? <laughs> Grouchiness? Got quiet in here. Sorry, guys. Uh, oh, do you, do, you, do you keep a record of wrongs just to bring it up years later when the conflict doesn't go the way you liked? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. Love, loving your wife means you bear all things, believe all things. Uh, another way you could paraphrase that is always believing the best. Hopes, all things, true love is relentlessly optimistic and endures all things. So husbands, how are you doing in that? Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. This passage says, and and in our translation, the CSB, it says, don't be bitter toward them. Other translations say, don't be harsh with them. In In the Greek, the root underneath that is to stab and you think about if you just took like just a swig of lime juice or something like that uh, and, and you're just, your mouth puckers up the idea of like a thousand little needles stabbing you in the mouth. If I was to write my own paraphrased version of the Bible, I would say, husbands, don't be nasty toward your wives. Because when there's an absence of true sacrificial Christ-like love, what then comes in is selfishness. What then comes in is wishing that either you had a different spouse or that the spouse you had was different. See, in their day, women didn't have the same kind of rights. Women were often treated, just overtly treated as property. This wife displeases me, I will write her off, I will get a new one, or I'll just add two in in certain parts of the world. And while in our day, yes, you can, uh, according to the laws of the land, divorce a wife and just trade in and get a newer one, some of you are too guilty to do that, and so instead you sit around and you wish that your spouse was, in fact, a different person. Husbands, love your wives. Jesus loves the bride that he has. And even still to this day, he is constantly laboring on her behalf so that one day we will be presented spotless and blameless and white at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Back to the other part. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now this one, again, this one is a tougher one in our culture. And the reason why is we almost exclusively use the word submit to mean something negative. 
Some parents in here, you have kids that are in wrestling. I was talking with Pastor Jamin about some of his kids in wrestling and the idea of like submitting. It's like you're going to use your body to contort someone else's body to cause enough pain that they submit. Some of you like to watch UFC. If you don't know what UFC is, don't worry about it. It will stress you out. But some of you like to watch UFC. They literally use the word submit as one of the ways that you win a mixed martial arts match. We're the, we're the downstream product of men who said, we're tired of paying so much taxes on tea, so we will pick up guns and shoot at other human beings so we don't have to pay so much taxes on tea because taxation without representation and forget you, King George, and they were you know, singing like Rage Against the Machine songs and we won't do what you tell me. And just that is the, <laughs> that is the cultural water that we swim in. Read the Bible, do a word study on submit, and see that virtually every single time it is used in the Bible, it is mentioned as a good thing, not as a bad thing. And it's so backward from our way of thinking. So let me, let me I, I want to camp on this for just a few minutes because I want to do some myth busters. Submission myth busters, okay? I don't have the beret, but I do have the mustache. Okay, so... Uh, Submission myth number one. Sometimes I hear it said this way. Well, you know, submission in a marriage just means that the husband has a tie-breaking vote. Okay, it may mean that, but that is a gross oversimplification. That is like saying, well, you know, golf. It means hunting for your ball in the woods. Okay, it may mean that. If it comes to that, I guess, yes. But it, it, it is such a truncated view of the glory that is expressed in the husband-wife relationship. It may mean that. It may also mean, husbands, if you're smart, you know where your wife is more gifted or capable or experienced or wiser than you, and you ask her and empower her to take the lead in certain matters because she actually will help you not, you know, get in trouble or go to jail. It's that way. My wife worked in, in uh, medical billing for, for years, and so I'm like, please help lead the way in our family's health insurance stuff. And that's one of many examples, but it doesn't just mean a tie-breaking vote. If that's your knee-jerk response to what biblical submission means, you need to expand your view a little bit. Number two, submission myth number two. Well, women should submit to men. That fails the did-you-actually-read-the-verse test. Because the verse says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. We could have a conversation about the right relationship between men and women in broader society, men and women in the community of faith, but what the verse actually says is for a wife, singularly to submit to her own husband. Wives, you do not submit to men in general. You submit yourself to your husband. Read what the Bible actually says. Submission myth number three, the husband should make their wife submit. Who is the commandment in this verse given to? The woman, the wife. And it actually says in the Greek, uh, the word for submit is in the middle voice. It's a reflexive verb. Wife, submit yourselves. You do the work of submitting yourselves to your husband. And I just want to say that this, again, is critically important. There is not a shred of a single verse anywhere in the Bible that looks anything like husbands make your wives submit. And that type of thinking is at best dangerous, domineering, and at worst, downright abusive. And there is no room for that in the Christian marriage. Listen, men, Sounds the Bible Church, we will hold you accountable if there is domineering or abusive behavior. You need to hear me loud and clear. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness for all sins, including even these ones that in our culture now would get you a scarlet letter for all of time. There's absolutely grace and mercy, but there is also such a thing as accountability and consequences. And if you detect in your heart or in your mind anything akin to this, you need to repent of it and put it to death sooner than later because to go down that road is to go down a path of destruction. Submission myth number four. This whole talk of husbands and wives and wives submitting, it's only due to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. 
Some scholars or authors or Bible teachers will try to say that the curse in Genesis 3, that you know, the curse on the, on the serpent, the curse that affects the woman, the curse that affects the man, there are these repercussions from the curse. And the one that affects the woman, one of the things that's mentioned is, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve giving place to sin, the beautiful harmony that's supposed to exist between husbands and wives often will turn into that ruling, domineering sort of a thing. But the problem is, is it fails the broader test of Scripture. Number one, it, in my opinion, this is my opinion, it gives too much place to the cultural definition of the word submission. But number two, the biblical justification is always given pre-fall. This is how God created them from the beginning, that husbands are to lovingly lead their wives and wives are to uh, humbly submit to the lead of their husband. And that doesn't have to do with the fall because the other pieces that affect the woman, like childbirth, you wouldn't say, well, childbirth, it says, becomes painful now because of sin. But you wouldn't go back and say that childbirth itself was sinful or wrong. And men, it says your work will be by the, the sweat of your brow and the toil of your hands, and thorns and thistles. But, but work existed before the fall. So if work existed before the fall and childbirth existed before the fall, and Paul in particular tells us that this loving relationship of, of submission of the wife to the husband's leadership existed before the fall. Yes, the fall has really messed stuff up. But we don't go back and then say, well, then it's, it's part of the fall itself. Number five, submission is based on gendered psychology. Here's what this myth sounds like. Well, you know, God instructs the women, the wives, to submit because women are just more natural followers. Oh boy, this one's fun. Number one, again, find me anything in the Bible that says anything like that. The justification is always given. This is how God created the marriage relationship to be. Number two, have you ever known any women? Okay. Um, and number three, it, it fails even within this own verse because let's, let's try this. Here's the other half, right? Well, men are commanded to love their wives because men are naturally more tender and affectionate. Be consistent. Be logically consistent. This is not based on gendered psychology. This is based on the marriage relationship and the structure that God made it. Two more. Submission means shutting down your gifts. Well, if I'm to be a good submissive wife, that means I just need to shut my mouth. I shouldn't lead. I shouldn't do things. I shouldn't have a job. I shouldn't advance. Again, man, that is so much that McCall's Cult of Family 1955 cultural stuff, not biblical marriage and not biblical womanhood. That's American 1955 womanhood. Go read Proverbs 31. Go back to the sermon that I preached on this last summer. The woman cooks and cleans and takes care of her family, and she considers a field and buys it. it says the teaching of wisdom and kindness is on her tongue. Ladies, for those of you who are married, submitting to your husband means the exact opposite of shutting down your gifts. It means you are looking to him. If he is loving you the way that he is supposed to, you're looking to him to help you flourish and to empower you to best use your gifts for God's glory and for the joy of everyone around you. It's just, I'll say it this way. It's an over-focus on one attribute. Here, Christian wives are being instructed to submit. But all the rest of the commandments about sharing the gospel and, and, and going into all the world and being brave and strong and courageous, all those other things, it's, it's, like a, it's like all the different springs in the trampoline that all work together. We're talking about one aspect or one attribute here. Keep them all in tension. Last one, submission implies less value. This one's often unspoken but it's revealed in the attitudes that come out sometimes. Ben Witherington, a biblical scholar, says it this way. He says, since this verb is also used of Christ's relationship to God the Father, and the same verb is used of all believers to each other, 
it surely does not imply the ontological inferiority, the, the less value of the submitter to the one submitted to. Rather, it has to do with the nature of a relationship between two persons. It may also, in fact, have to do more with following, get this, the example of Christ, who humbled himself and took a lower place. In other words, in a Christian context, the verb has to do with humility and service as modeled by Christ. And I would say it actually works both ways. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is a reflection of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Husbands, lovingly sacrifice and lay down your life for your wife as a reflection of the Lord Jesus. Both partners in the marriage are playing different aspects of Jesus to each other. And when it's, when it's like that, friends, it is so beautiful. It is Christ-honoring, and it is joy-giving to us. Now, the next pair, I won't spend as much time on, a little less controversial, but still important. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, in everything, I should say, for this pleases the Lord, and fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. I, I think there's a few really beautiful things in this passage. Again, we're assuming a Christian home, but, but get this. Children are included in the instructions given to the church. Children are not second-class citizens in the church, in the community of faith. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? It is why we have labored so hard to make sure to eliminate the use of the word child care <laughs> from our Sunday gatherings and say children's ministry because our kids are disciples of Jesus who have value and worth and are meant to be included in the family of God. And sometimes we have kids in the room who squawk or make noise. And while I am an easily distracted person, you know that, I thank God that there are squawks and movements and dropping of things because children are precious to Jesus and they ought to be precious to us as well. And God bless doubly, triply those of you who invest your lives and your time to serve the youngest members of our church community. Amen? Like, thank you so much for teaching and loving and serving our children because they're included here. And the instruction is, children, you are to obey godly parents. It should be said, the verse says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It, 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 it maybe goes without saying, but I'll at least just say it. Children are not to obey their parents in sin. We're assuming here a Christian household where the parents are doing their best to live for Jesus, to model faith, to model even repentance. So children, don't follow your parents into sin. Your allegiance needs to actually be to Jesus more than it is to your parents. But as they are godly, as they are following Christ, obey them. And children, yes, are to learn from their parents, which means parents, you have a responsibility to teach and instruct. Thankful for schools, thankful for children's ministry, but you are the primary one who has a responsibility to teach and to train and to instruct your child. This verse is calling for children to learn from their parents, to grow in the faith, for parents to instruct their children. Now, isn't it interesting, the one commandment given to parents, and I think the word here is, is, is paters in the Greek. It can mean fathers and mothers together. I think it's probably specifically speaking to fathers because culturally you would assume husband, father, master, kind of this head of household, like all in one bundle. So I think it is specifically given to fathers. It says, fathers do not exasperate your children. Now, why would Paul... And Timothy, under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, write that specific commandment. There's some cultural things I stumbled across this week that I found really tragically funny. 
And I want to read them to you so you understand what we're dealing with here. The first one is a work of Hebrew writing. It's called The Wisdom of Ben Sirach. Sometimes it's known as the book of Ecclesiasticus. This is not canonical scripture. It's one of those books in between the Old and the New Testament. Here is some wisdom and some instruction that is written to dads. Whoever spoils his son will bind up his wounds and will suffer heartache at every cry. An unbroken horse turns out stubborn and an unchecked son turns out headstrong. Pamper a child and he will terrorize you. Play with him and he will grieve you. Do not laugh with him or you will have sorrow with him and in the end you will gnash your teeth. Give him no freedom in his youth and do not ignore his errors. Do not ignore his errors. Bow down his neck in his youth and beat his sides while he is young or else he will become stubborn and disobey you, and you will have sorrow of soul from him. Discipline your son and make his yoke heavy, so that you will not be offended by his shamelessness. That is what you call self-focused, reputation-based parenting. Treat your kid like an animal, do this, don't do that, so that they won't reflect badly on you. Lest we pick on the Jewish community too much, what about the broader Greco-Roman world? Well, I'm glad you asked, because there's a guy named Dionysius, who is a Greek historian. He wrote, right around the time of the birth of Jesus, he wrote this. The lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son. Whether he thought it proper, like, you know, if, if the dad wanted to, say, imprison him or to scourge him, to put him in chains, to keep him at work in the fields, or even to put him to death. But that's, you know, that's not enough. It says, this is tragic, but it's kind of funny. Even if his son is already engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates, and though he was celebrated for his zeal in the commonwealth. Family dinner, Thanksgiving. Hey, how's your, how's your son doing? Great, he's married. They got a couple of kids, 2.5 kids. And he's actually serving. He's actually serving. He's, he started a business that's very successful. And, you know, he's 28 now, and he's actually serving on the city council. We just couldn't be prouder of him. But we did have a thing. I had to, I had to scourge him last week, and I had to imprison him for a while. I'm not going to put him to death, but I just let him know that could be an option if he doesn't get his act together. Like, that's what's being described there. Under Roman law, yeah, beat your son if you want. The word of God, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Listen, we're not talking about becoming a permissive parent who just lets your kid get away with everything. But fathers in particular, you need to hear this word. This is for fathers and mothers, but fathers in particular, if you adopt that nitpicking type of mentality, you will discourage your child. Ted Tripp is an author who wrote a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you are a parent and you've not read this book, I would encourage you to stop reading Hunger Games or whatever outdated fiction book you're reading right now and pick this up and read it right away. Ted Tripp says this, Our culture tends toward the extreme poles in a continuum. In the area of authority, we tend either toward a crass kind of John Wayne authoritarianism or toward being a wimp. We have a very hard time holding these things in tension. God calls you by his word and his example to be authorities who are truly kind. God calls you to exercise authority not in making your children do what you want, but in being true servants, authorities who lay down your lives. The purpose for your authority in the lives of your children is not to hold them under your power, but to empower them to be self-controlled people living freely under the authority of God. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. As we look at each of these examples, that phrase, in the Lord, 
and the foundation of the gospel that we've looked at for months should just be ringing in our hearts. Because when, when there's an instruction given for husbands to love their wives, we're to remember that Jesus came with perfect love. Jesus said, there is no greater love than one would lay down their life for their friends. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He sacrificed himself on the cross so that we could experience the love of God. And when we hear this instruction of wives, submit to your husbands, we're to remember that Jesus submitted to the Father, that, that Paul in Philippians says, though he exists in the very nature of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped or, or exploited, but he humbled himself and became a servant, obedience, even to death on a cross. And when we read this instruction to children to obey, we're to remember that Jesus perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. Romans 5 says, it's by his perfect obedience that we are made righteous. None of us have been perfectly obedient to our heavenly Father, have we? And yet in Christ, when we, when we repent of our sin and trust in him for his grace and mercy, his righteousness, his perfect obedience is credited to us. And when we read that fathers are not to exasperate children, we're to remember that the commands of our Lord Jesus don't exasperate us. First John says his commandments are not burdensome. He gives us the motivation of the gospel. He gives us the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit. And all of God's commands for us are good. He doesn't exasperate us. Now listen, let me, let me close with this. Because when we look at these commands, yes, there are specific relational components to them, but all can learn from all four of these instructions. So all can learn how to submit. Look throughout the scriptures, who is called to submit to God? All of us. Who is called to submit to one another? All of us, we, look, we, we touched on that verse in Ephesians. So, so wives, you have a specific area that God has carved out for you to practice that. But every single one of us, married, unmarried, young, old, male, female, is to learn how to submit. And how much more so as Americans do we need to learn the beauty of true submission? We could all learn how to practice genuine love. Husbands, you have been given a specific instruction to really practice genuine love with your wife. But is there anyone in this room who is not called to learn to love better? The answer is no. We all are called to learn to love better, to practice sacrificial, self-giving love. We all are called to learn how to obey. Every single one of us, not just children. You're like, I'm not a child anymore. I don't have to obey. Well, sorry, God says to obey him. And specific instructions to obey the overseers of the church, even commandments given to obey the governing authorities around us. Sorry, libertarians. <sighs> we're all called to learn how to obey. Children, you have a special area carved out to practice, and we're all called to not exasperate each other. Maybe the hardest one on this list. You are frustrating to somebody. I know this. Parents, fathers, you've been given a specific instruction to really be mindful of this in the parent-child relationship. But all of you are instructed to not frustrate others, to be gracious, to not be rude or self-seeking with others. And here's the, here's the kicker. Even if the other person doesn't, Christ loved us when we were still in our sin and he laid his life down for us. May we learn to not just be a better version of ourselves, but to be a better reflection of Christ in whatever relational context he gives to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your instructions for us are good and true. And I ask and I pray now as we come to the Lord's table to eat and to drink, to celebrate of your grace, I ask and I pray that you would help us to experience your love for us and to respond with love to you that we would see the, the perfect obedience and submission of Christ and we would respond with increased obedience and submission to you. We give you this time now as we, as we come before you to eat and to drink and to sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. We're going to respond now through the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the younger students class to come and join us. 
whenever they're ready. Uh, it's through communion that we experience this time where we can meet with Jesus. We can, um, we're reconciled to God through Christ's sacrifice. This is a sacred time for us. Uh, you know, sometimes we can just fly through communion. Uh, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. Uh, and I love this time because it's just time for us to pause, to reflect, to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, to examine our hearts as well, as the, as the passage we're going to read here in a moment tells us to do. As I was thinking about this idea of uh, Christ in the home and in relationships, I, I came across a quote by author Ed Welch that says, We should remember that it is through Christ's death that we are reconciled to God and to each other. He has made us one, and we set our hearts on pursuing unity and love. The Lord's Supper is a great time to pray and plan for oneness with our brothers and sisters. And I love this, this last line. It says, it's a time to explore new ways to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. What a great idea to explore new ways that we can love one another better, that we can sacrifice uh, for one another. So as we come to the table this morning, let's remember that we can only accomplish this, being a better husband, a better spouse, a better father, a better son or daughter, a better friend. We can only accomplish this by God working through us. It's, it's his power in us that transforms us and changes us and empowers us to live holy lives. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're going to pause now and take a moment to reflect, to examine ourselves Uh, to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we're going to encourage us to uh, just take a moment, pause, and reflect, and uh, examine your own heart. Ask the Lord what it is that he wants you, the areas in your life that um, he wants you to submit or to love in greater ways. Uh, And let's let the Holy Spirit lead this time now. So I'll pray, and then whenever you're ready, go ahead and stand. uh, take, Take the elements and then join us as we stand and sing. Jesus, thank you for um, this reminder each and every week that we can come before you. We can come to the table. Um, You've instructed us, Lord, to to take these elements, to take this time serious, uh, to reflect on your sacrifice, your death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We worship you as king. And, Lord, we want to live our lives uh, after your, the model that you've set for us, sacrificially. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us this morning. Lord, would you empower us to uh, repent, to live our lives differently than the world? And, um, Lord, we just give this time to you now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.